Hello and happy holidays, everyone. This is the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. And this episode is a best of, in which I've picked out some of my favourite parts of the conversations I've had in 2017. In the following order, just so as you know who's speaking, I chat to Johnny Rankin, Turtle Dove Pilgrim, about using wildlife to achieve personal and physical change. Author Stephen Moss covers some of his most special birding memories. Dame Fiona Reynolds talks about the importance of beauty in making conservation change happen. Debbie Payne and Annette Faye talk about the power of science to help us unlock undiscovered secrets in the natural world. Paul Rosalie describes why he wanted to travel unaccompanied into the uncharted depths of the Peruvian rainforest. Alan Rabinowitz recalls his childhood promise, now fulfilled many times over, to save big cats. Wildlife photographer Tom Mason talks about how to set yourself apart as an artist. My grandfather, Tony Payne, describes an idyllic childhood in the countryside while Britain fought the Second World War. Ben Eagle and Pete Cooper talk with me about the hot topic of raptor persecution. And finally, Chloe Revel describes how her immersive change in nature retreats help people reconnect with nature and might even motivate them to do more to save it. You can find all of these conversations and more in full at wildvoicesproject.org or by subscribing to Wild Voices Project in iTunes or Stitcher. I've already got some very exciting conversations planned for 2018, so I really hope that you'll keep listening next year. And thank you so much if you've listened in 2017. But for the next few days, have a restful holiday period, and I hope you manage to fit in some wild time outdoors with your loved ones. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. We are part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. Find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org. Learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. So I wanted to ask, with whether it's, you know, your BMXing or your interest in kind of... I suppose your interest in heavy metal music or in particular your walking and your running for Dovestep, which we'll come on, come on to in a moment, there seems to be kind of you know, a theme of movement and energy. You know, for Dovestep, if you wanted to raise money, you could have chosen to, you know, be sponsored to do almost anything, but you've picked moving and moving in quite a serious way. What is it that's important to you about movement? That That is really interesting. I've never really had it put to me in that way before. Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's kinetic activities, heavy metals, pretty kinetic, you know... Um, yeah, head banging, just yeah, general destruction, all that sort of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. I've never really looked into it or thought about it in that way. But uh, I, I'm 33 now, and a lot of years of heavy metal living and the BMX living that was quite self-destructive. Um, at times, very self-destructive. I'm not suggesting that you know kids don't do it. I'm saying do it. You know, have the time of your life. Uh, I went on BMX tours around, around France with really good friends, numerous heavy metal shows. I absolutely loved it, and I'd recommend it to anyone. 
I am now at a stage in my life whereby it does take a little bit longer to recover from those injuries. The hangovers do last a bit longer. Yeah. So I don't know whether I'm just maturing, but literally in the lifetime of dubstep, endurance has become a real a real focus and something I take a lot of enjoyment from. And I think there's a, there's an important point there. So every time we've raised money for um, the RSPB and specifically Operation Turtle Dove, every time we made sure that the task at hand was something we had no certainty we could do. Right down to the initial efforts, you know, we did really quite a bog standard normal thing, which, um, <clears throat> you know, people's grandmothers do every weekend. So we did a half marathon. Mm-hmm. You've got to remember, this isn't like couch to 5K. This is like heavy metal living to a half marathon. So it might seem trivial, and it seems trivial to me looking back, but actually at the time, that was asking everything of me, and it started the process of applying myself, mm. really applying myself to achieve something that was, at the point at which I decided to do it, completely out of my grasp. Now, I would say that the year after that half marathon, we did the first dubstep journey. I was still extremely naive, extremely naive. And obviously, as a result, we suffered a lot in walking 300 miles in 13 days. But again, that was the equivalent of couch to 5K, but it was couch to 300 mile walk in 13 days. So I think the thing that attracts me to the movement is stretching yourself physically and mentally and and just just being wholly accountable. I'm not going to say to you, I could run a marathon now. I could leave the door and I could run a marathon and I could ask people to support me for Operation Turtle Dove. No one cares. Nobody cares. I could do a marathon today and tomorrow and I could ask people to support me. No one cares. Everyone does a marathon. We had to make it something demonstrable something that I do not know I can do. I don't know that when we fly to Spain in two weeks' time, I'll be able to walk a marathon distance every day for 700 miles. So that is the attraction. I think the attraction's in the overall goal and the execution. So it's twofold. I think I might have gone off on a tangent there. It's a good tangent, though. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really really interesting, because the way that you've described it is, like, for you the birds and then the supporting them and the helping them has become a real vehicle for you for personal change as well. Well, I suppose, you know, a lot of my professional life, teams on Big Cat Diary, teams on Springwatch, I was back on Springwatch this year doing the commentary on the the red button and the the online um, live wildlife cameras with these wonderful array of colleagues, some of whom I've known for 20, 30 years and are very mm-hmm. close friends, and others new, young, really interested, really passionate about wildlife. You know, and it was wonderful. That, so that, for me, sharing that and sharing it with the audience, I was talking about the wildlife, as Suzanne, my wife, said, you're being paid to witter about birds for several hours a day. Well, that's fine, I can do that, you know. Um, and it was a real joy because we got lovely response on Twitter and facebook and things from the audience but also from colleagues um and for me you're sharing wildlife with people i'm an evangelist for wildlife i said that at the communicate conference the other day and one man took exception to this but i don't care because i am i'm, I'm trying to convert people 
to a passion for wildlife. I suppose the most special moments were early on in my relationship with my wife, Suzanne. Um, we have a shared love of birds. We met when I led a birdwatching trip that she came on, a birdwatching course. And we had some wonderful times in um, Trinidad and Tobago, on Thursley Common, you know, just places around Britain and around the world. Um, you know, Kenya, the Gambia, where we went on our honeymoon, you know, and that that has been very special because, you know, I met my wife through birds, my children exist, you know, through that, my young children, you know, and uh, and also going out with them, you know, I've had amazing moments with them. If you look at the cover of this birding life, it's me and a very young Charlie looking at some smew somewhere. I can't remember if we ever did go and look for smew, but, you know, that was done by Robert Gilmore to illustrate the fact that my life is wrapped up with my family and my friends and the people I go birdwatching with you know for me I love going out on my own but I love going out with one or two other people you know Mm. or a group and you know we enjoy wildlife together. I wonder if um, what you're talking about there about the different kinds of the different kinds of landscapes and the different Mm. kinds of farming and that sort of thing I think for me in reading in reading your book, mm. that was for me at the heart of how I think you understand what beauty means, yes, which is yes. about heterogeneity yeah. and kind of um, colloquial colloquialism within the landscape. Am I right? Is that fair? Yes. I mean, what I was I worried endlessly about using the word beauty actually, except that now I I kind of have thought it through to the point where I'm completely unapologetic. But lots of people said we don't use the word beauty. You know, it's a superficial thing. It's um, in the eye of the beholder, or it's just one dimension. And no, my point was absolutely, and I hope I've made the case. You know, that it represents the sort of composite. You know, the uh, the way in which areas have distinctive characters and distinctive kind of qualities which emerge from usually very long historical patterns of, of land use or urban evolution or, or whatever mm. it is, not just confined to rural areas. And B, there's a kind of big human element. I mean, I mean absolutely, I'm a sort of Hoskins devotee, you know, that, that this is, we're not after pristine landscapes that are untouched by human hand because our landscapes are not like that and, and never will be. And of course, we, we need some areas where the hand of intervention is very much lighter than it is now but it's not about no intervention at all in my Mm. view so I I, I use beauty as a way of sort of aggregating these different elements and also tried very hard not to get caught by the idea that beauty is something that sort of the middle classes you know embrace when they're well off enough and have bought their nice house or whatever but that as I described through the history of Ruskin and Octavia Hill and everyone else it's a kind of deeply important human need for everyone regardless of, of circumstance and um, economic position, etc. Well, I think as you write, maybe in the book or maybe it's in one of your articles, Octavia Hill and the others who were working mm. at that time, you know, sort of a century or more ahead of the science, yeah. identified yeah. something that is actually fundamental to human health and well-being. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was, you know, Octavia Hill's writings are so profoundly about, you know, human need and, you know, the way that how deprived the way that our lives are impoverished by deprived de- deprivation of, of nature and you know her taking the ragged school children out into Essex you know on a, on a Sunday when I mean it was a 10 mile walk from the ragged school where she taught out to Epping Forest but she wanted them to see you know blue skies and, and flowers and smell nature and have 
bare feet and walk in the grass and the, and the ponds in a way that, you know, in central London at that time, they simply never saw a green blade of grass. You know, it was so filthy and their lives were so deprived. So, yes, absolutely seeing this as a kind of fundamental human need. And, of course, as you say, the sort of science and the technological understanding has evolved since then but in a way my book is about saying don't get so captivated by that that you forget the human need mm. because actually you know that when you reduce everything to sort of instrumental and technical arguments you know, someone can always trump you actually that's an unfortunate word to use now isn't it but <laughs> yes. maybe not maybe not but that's that was the problem that you know the, the sort of instrumental kind of characteristics of nature you know someone could always say well it's worth more to have the reservoir or to plow out the um, wetland site or whatever it was it was always kind of more valuable to do the destructive thing whereas if you argue it to me on almost moral grounds um, and these kind of deeper human needs um, you can actually make a case for protecting these places and these attributes I believe in, in a more effective way mm. Well I think in the book you make the case quite convincingly both for the fundamental importance to people of beauty and also of beauty being more than something superficial yeah. Yeah. through, in particular, the kind of cultural significance it built up in the decades prior to Octavia Hill's work mm. through artists and through poets like Wordsworth, yeah. for example. And I think um, my interpretation was that at that moment and again when, when you began your career, that there were three kind of Inter interacting or interfacing elements. There was the kind of cultural significance of beauty and landscapes to people. There was the kind of legislative or th there were the legislative definitions, mm. but those on their own weren't enough. You know, you you write about how national parks were designated, but even after they were designated, there was yeah. still yeah. degradation of them. And then yeah. the third element being the kind of political will and the campaigning now of. Um, organisations working to protect them and together that cultural mm. importance and that public kind of backing for them, the legislative elements and the political and campaigning element work together to make mm. changes at those crucial moments. I think that's right and, and I mean there are lots of, I you know, got a bit entranced by the sort of Ruskin period and then the kind of, you know uh, immediately post Second World War period, but there are. To be honest, I, I started off thinking there were these two great moments, but actually, when you really look at it and study it and read, there's it's, it's much more complicated than that. But there was there was, there was a real sense, and I, I remember reading. I can't remember where I read it now, but somewhere that, you know, as the Industrial Revolution really took hold, was also the moment at which people really, really valued nature, and you know some of those early engravings like Buick and, and, and others, you know, were moments where people started to identify birds and really connect with nature in a, in a much more profound way, partly out of contrast to the industrialisation and the impoverishment of their lives that was going on through mm. the harsh working conditions. So in a way, I think, and that's why I'm always obsessed with the cultural value of, of nature and landscape and, and history, as much as I am with the sort of scientific value because I think this is very much a, a, um, a movement that is about emotional and spiritual responses as well as about you know objective needs and that to me is where we've often got a bit carried away by the need to be objective and to make a sort of business case for nature if you like where actually it's it's a deeply spiritual sense of connection that you know wherever you look in history people have felt it um, and felt it in a very profound way. Um, how 
you know, I, in, in my day job, I spend a lot of time sitting down with civil servants, mm. with mm. policy people in other NGOs, with ministers sometimes, if I'm lucky enough. Um, and uh, again, you refer to this, you know, if I were to try and bring up beauty as an mm. argument in those meetings, there'd probably be, you know, a couple of weird looks and, you know, I'd feel a bit red faced. How do you think we bring beauty back into consultation responses, back into lobbying conversations with with civil servants in a way that you know in a way that um doesn't result in the in the lobbyist just looking a bit red-faced well i i think this is a really interesting challenge and a really vital one because in a way if i look back over the years many years of campaigning every now and again you win an argument by sheer hard work and loads of evidence submitted and loads of good meetings with civil servants and ministers and you know getting the parliamentary questions tables and all the sort of classic things every now and again that works and it's great stuff and lobbyists become extremely good at it in fact i became almost one of the most i think you know policy wonkish policy wonks there ever was at a certain (laughs) point in my career you know i was bloody good at it and so was everyone around me you know we were all really really good but actually when you look back and think where were the breakthrough moments where were the kind of big shifts that came about, the things that really matter. It was when you talked at a totally different level and when it was demonstrated that the public was behind us in a Mm. very um, almost intuitively, powerfully, um, often unashamedly emotional way. So, you know, winning the argument about the forests, for example, or the NPPF was not... You mean the sort of 2011 one? Yeah, those recent ones, was was entirely... um, you know, at the end of the day, just a sort of huge public reaction, which which swung. It wasn't it wasn't the technical, nerdy sort of clever but actually rather soulless arguments. And looking further back, you know, getting national parks out of the doldrums, you know, of course, all those submissions and the Edwards review and everything else. But actually, it was when the government realised just how important, you know, people. Um, found national parks, you know, the, the, the evidence of the um, people visiting them and the, the, the sort of spiritual uplift that people felt, you know. So I think there's lots and lots of arguments in my life where we've done all that stuff. And, and yes, it might have felt red-facing or whatever to, to use the word beauty, but actually, actually, it worked better to be unashamedly, um, you know, lifting the, the argument out of the technocratic and into into a kind of more into values uh, yeah into values into morals into you know this is the right thing to do and this is why it's the right thing to do but 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 you know so so there there are there's always a combination of forces going on when you get a policy shift Mm. always um but as i say if if i'm if i'm really honest of those 35 years or whatever that i've been working i i think you know, we, we thought we were so clever, but actually the things that were breakthroughs were were very often the things that caught the public imagination. Or, or a minister who just in their heart said, yeah, you know, I love native broadleaf trees and I'm, I'm fed up that the Forestry Commission just doesn't give them enough attention. You know, those moments. Or when Lawson pulled, um, you know, commercial forestry out of the hugely uh, advantageous tax advantages mm. in 80... Seven or something. I can't remember the date now. It's in my book. It's terrible how you forget. Yeah, I've got that bit. I haven't. Just I can't yeah. remember it. No, no. But you know, yeah. it was. It, and it was just he, Lawson just looked at it and said, "It's immoral that you know all these incredibly rich people who don't actually 
really care about trees. It's just a tax device. You know, we're wrecking the flow country in Scotland and it's got to stop, you know. So, as I say, there are... there are. So of course, you have to make the arguments, but I want people to talk about beauty. I want people to talk in more charismatic and emotional terms, and I think it will... At the end of the day, I think it will have... So is that, um, you say WWT hadn't had a director of conservation before, is some of that going out to other countries and focusing on the most threatened birds, is that one of the things that having that new director role allowed you and the organisation to do? And are there other new things that, you know, that new post permitted? Yeah, so that this... We had a strategy um, that we developed then, and that, this is going back nine and a half years. Our strategy is very different now. It's evolved since then, and we've got a new, new strategy that's only just been launched. Yeah. But back then, we had a big focus on threatened species. So, of course, Peter Scott, when he started up WWT, is famous for saving the nene. Yeah. So that's exactly what he did. You know, he brought some nene over and bred them and you know, got them back and reintroduced nene. But other than that, there hadn't been anything like that since... Peter Scott's day so you know for half a century um, and I guess the first thing that seemed very obvious was uh, working on the Madagascar potchard so this is a species that was thought to be extinct probably twice right. so there were some in captivity in the 1930s no more in captivity after the second world war um, and after the 1960s, none were thought to exist in Madagascar. There were some surveys. None were found until 1992, when a single bird was discovered on Lake Alotra, a big lake in the central uh, plateau, by a hunter, a male bird. That was brought into captivity. That sadly died in captivity. Lots more surveys, no more birds found. So thought to be probably extinct again. Yeah. And then in 2006, I believe, the Peregrine Fund again. So you see, there's a there's a thread here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great organisation. They were working in the remote part of northern Madagascar, uh, working on raptors. Obviously, they're a raptor organisation. And uh, a guy who worked for them, Lily Aronson, had noticed some ducks on this volcanic lake and one day decided to go and have a look at them. I have a Madagascar potchard. <laughs> <laughs> and there were about 25 or so there. So they were rediscovered. Um, and when I arrived at WWT at the beginning of 2008, there had been some surveys, no more birds found, just this one small population on this lake. So it was, it was an obvious thing to start with. Um, so we spoke to Durrell. Mm -hmm. um, Durrell have got a long history in Madagascar and said, you know, would you like collaborate with us over trying to find out what the issues are and do something to bring this species back and so we sent an expedition over there in 2009 uh, to look at the situation and they found that of these 20 odd birds only six were female so the global breeding population was six pairs on one small remote lake and the team came back and said we really think we need to do something. They don't appear to be very productive. They're producing ducklings, but then they seem to disappear. Um, right. So we think we need to get some in captivity as a safety net, and we'll plan to do it next year. And I said, and what happens if there's a stochastic event this year, like a disease or a typhoon or something, and they all disappear? Let's try and do it this year. And everybody thought I was totally mad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Durrell, um, there's a guy called John Farr at the time at Durrell, he was totally on board. And we actually sat down, worked out the logistics, and my team worked out the logistics of how we could make it work. 
We managed to get some emergency funding from Mitsubishi. I was going to ask how how, how this so, kind of work was funded, yeah. Uh, so we had a meeting with... Why Mitsubishi? Uh, the Mitsubishi Fund for Conservation Fund for Africa and oh, Europe. Okay. So yeah. it's very specific. Right. They came to Slimbridge. Um, our head of conservation breeding got out of Madagascar potched skin and said, we don't want this to be the only one anyone will ever see. And they were brilliant. They gave us some funding, enough funding to go out and do an emergency rescue. Of course, we couldn't get visas for a very long period, so we had people going out in succession. It was, it was an incredibly adventurous thing to do uh, because the place, the lake where the potchard were, is, um, I think it's about 40 kilometres of dirt track. You can only drive it in the dry season, and even then it's really tough right. in a four-wheel drive. You have to walk it in the wet season and of course no electricity no water nothing like that so they had to take out you know portable battery operated incubators they didn't have anywhere to bring the birds but fortunately during their first recce out there they'd met um with a vet who with her husband ran a hotel in the nearest place with a, a good electricity and water supply and she said well tell you what we'll give you a bedroom and some room outside to set up like a, a temporary center to, to rear your birds so they managed to get out there they and they planned to be out there quite a long time before the first brood was due to hatch they had a biologist Malagasy biologist watching the birds watching their behavior and they said right well we know things are logistically difficult in Madagascar so we'll give ourselves a really big window and be there a few weeks early mm. And they flew out from Paris to Tana, Antananarivo, the capital of Madagascar. There was a terrible electric storm over Tana. Everybody being thrown around. They couldn't land. They had to divert to the nearest airport, which was Nairobi. So the whole team was stuck in Nairobi for four or five days. They then got to Tana, and I think a couple of them had swine flu. So they were really sick. All of their equipment didn't arrive. They had to go around Tana buying all of the things that they needed. They then kind of got better, set off north, um, and the only road they could go along, they, um, they were stopped by the fact a bridge was being repaired and there were huge queues of traffic. So they had a couple of days stuck by this bridge and they finally made it up to the lake the day before they estimated that that clutch was due to hatch. Yeah. And of course, if it had hatched, there'd be ducklings all over the lake and there's no chance of catching them. So how do you catch a Madagascar <laughs> botch? <can't. laughs> <laughs> so they got there and they woke up, they put their tents up in the dark, got the you know battery operated incubators there, woke up the next morning, went out and looked at the lake. First thing they saw was some Madagascar potchard ducklings, three of them. So they thought, oh no, we're too late. Yeah. The second thing they saw was a globally threatened Madagascar harrier come round down and take the three ducklings. Word. <laughs> so there's a conservation dilemma. That's for why they you. all kept going. <laughs> but in fact, we found it's not the harriers that oh, are right, a problem okay. for the ducklings. <laughs> that that was just coincidence. Yeah. I think it was a late breeding season, and the young harriers just coincided yeah. with the ducklings. So, but of course, we didn't know that at the time. So the team, after all they'd been through, you can imagine how devastated they were. <laughs> And uh, anyway, they said, let's go out on the lake in canoes anyway. And they found another clutch that was about to hatch, which was brilliant. Yeah. So they managed to take that and they got another two clutches. And they got them back to this hotel. 
and reared them in captivity. Fortunately, I think they had about 23 birds. I might be getting my figures slightly wrong, but most of them, about 16 of them were female, which is brilliant because you've then got a captive effective breeding population of 16 pairs. Yeah. Because the males will mate with several females. Yes. <laughs> and so that was brilliant. So that, that started up our conservation breeding program, which developed into, you know, building a proper mini slim bridge in Madagascar. That's now equipped, um, fully equipped. We've got outdoor ponds and aviaries. It's run entirely by Malagasy staff who've been trained in aviculture who are brilliant. Our team don't need to be out there at all. Um, that's run in collaboration with Durrell. Um, so that's great. And the project has now evolved. So the research that took place out there, got a research scientist called Andy Barnford working out there mm -hmm. with Malagasy scientists. We found that the reason that population was so small is that these volcanic lakes are really deep and steep-sided tiny bits of fringe vegetation and the adults were diving to feed for a lot longer than the ducklings and the ducklings they'd hatch loads of ducklings and they'd survive for a week and then they'd just start dying and they'd practically all disappear and they couldn't feed so the lake bottom was too deep for the ducklings to feed and only one or two of them could get enough food to right. make it so it's probably a really suboptimal habitat. So they become isolated to these really poor lakes. And it's, it's probably no good at all, but they've hung on there because yeah. they're very remote. Yeah. They're not fished because there are no fish in the lake. Yeah. They're not used. They don't have introduced invasive species. Um, they're not hunted. It's, they're, it's a sacred lake. So they've probably just hung on there because it's you know one of the only places they could hang on. And they're just the population's just been ticking over with this really small population. They can produce, you know, 100 ducklings in a year, but very few of them actually make it, but enough to keep the population ticking over. So we then knew that we had to find another place to reintroduce them to. So started doing big surveys right across the whole of the central highlands of other lakes, the lake depths, you know, how the lakes are used by local communities, what the invertebrate composition and abundance is, what the fish were, what the constraints might be and identified one lake called Lake Sophia mm -hmm. in the same region, another very remote lake, um, but quite heavily used, about 12,000 people living in the local villages around it. It's a very large lake, but with really good habitat still on it, even though the surrounding hillsides have been largely deforested. But although it's not in brilliant condition, it's in pretty good condition, that could be restored and that had local communities that already had kind of management committees for sort of sustainably managing their lakes so a really good kind of local infrastructure mm. to try and manage the lake so we've been working with a range of partners in madagascar so with durrell still with actually with the birdlife partner acity in madagascar uh, with an organization um, the local branch of the aga khan foundation um, so Work, which is a development organisation with a whole range of organisations trying to find ways of improving local livelihoods in ways that will benefit the local communities. These are very poor local communities. Again, no water, no electricity, no sanitation, mm -hmm. um, you know, very high infant mortality, um, but improve the conditions for those local people in ways that also improve the lake. For the wildlife on the lake as a potential reintroduction site for Madagascar Potchard. Yeah. And those measures are going incredibly well. The local community is absolutely on board. A whole range of things are taking place to benefit livelihoods. And we're hoping to do the first reintroductions next year. Oh so, wow. Which is amazing. And we've got a very good, you know, breeding population in captivity yeah. to enable us to do that. Yeah. And they're still ticking over at the lake in the wild. 
but I love that project because it's taken it from a saving one of the world's most endangered species to saving a lake working in a watershed for really true sustainable development that's sustainable for people and for the environment because that is the only way to go in the long term and that work is now cascading out to other sites in Madagascar and the wetlands in Madagascar are some of the most threatened in the world and I think you know this is really where my heart lies it's the joining up the habitat the threatened wildlife and the people yeah and making sure that all of those things work together um, to benefit everything in a really sustainable way and I love that project and I am so proud of what the team have done on that and the partners that we work with. It's, you know, in my mind, almost the perfect project. It's um, fantastic. So. Yeah, that's an incredible accomplishment. And could you say a little bit about what, what it is that you focused your research on in particular? During my PhD? Yeah, during your PhD yeah, and what you're focusing on now as well, maybe. Yeah, so... Um, so now that I work on seabirds, the main thing I'm looking at is um, the movements that birds do when they're at sea. So all we knew until recently about seabirds was when we can observe them, which is when they're on land. But that doesn't happen really often in the life of a seabird because they only come to land to breed. So it might be just a few months um, during, during the summer, but most of the time they're at sea. We don't know where, we have no idea what they're doing. And in some cases, if they're endangered, then we can't protect them because we, we have no idea where they are. Um, and so one of, the, one of the things I'm doing is following the movements of seabirds at sea when you can't see them. And that can be during the breeding season when they go on trips to get food for their chick or during, migra- during the winter when they go on migration. And then I try to relate that with their breeding success, for example. So are there different strategies which are better than others? Um, and with environmental data, so uh, do certain individuals or certain species have preferences for cold waters or these waters or these ones? Um, so really try and understand um, why they go where they go, what they do when they're at sea, um, how that affects their survival and fitness, um, and these kind of things. Um, and my, my understanding is that you've focused on puffins and on Manx shearwaters? Yes. Uh, so my PhD was entirely on puffins and manchia waters, and now I'm starting to develop some new project on other species, but they haven't happened yet. Okay. And what were some of the key things that you found out through your PhD? So, um, so I was studying the migration of puffins, so we didn't really know at all where puffins migrated. Mm. Um, which, so yeah, when I started my PhD, I was astonished to think that you know, puffins are so famous. Everyone in the street would know what a puffin looks like. And... But yet we knew almost nothing about them. You know, um, people have tried for a long time to, um, to understand where puffins spend the winter. People try to go on boats or on planes at sea to try and spot like big flocks of puffins in the winter, but uh, didn't manage. There's even a study where someone took a plane and crossed the Atlantic, I think, 101 times or something like that, and spotted six puffins. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, it was really a mystery. And, and so at the start of my PhD... We uh, were putting these really, really miniature trackers on them that could uh, take two positions a day. They're not very accurate, but accurate enough to know where the birds are roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we could plot the first maps and the, the first tracks of migration routes of puffins. Um, and really, it was a complete surprise because I don't know if you've seen puffins, but they have quite short, stubby wings. It doesn't yeah. look like they're not albatrosses, they're not designed for long flight. <laughs> so we were expecting that they'd be around 
you know, around the breeding colony, not too far. Yeah. But actually, some of the birds would go really far away. They could go to... Uh, so these birds were breeding in Wales and then go to Iceland uh, or even Canada. We had some birds going all the way to... So crossing the whole Atlantic. In a few weeks, in headwinds. <laughs> like, it's incredible. Uh, some of them would go to the Mediterranean Sea. So that was another thing that we found was unusual, is that in other species, bird species and, and seabird species, you basically all the individuals of the population may, will go to one place, more or less, mm. and then back. Yeah. But puffins are completely different. So two or three puffins which might breed within two meters of each other may spend the winter five thousand kilometers apart. Yeah. You know, one might be in the Mediterranean Sea, the other one might be in Canada. So that was, that's really unusual. But you found that when a pair mate together, if they migrate to roughly the same place, they're more likely to be successful at breeding the next year. Yes. Uh, yes, that's true. So if they follow more similar routes, that doesn't mean they're together, but they follow more similar routes. They lay earlier, which in birds in general is, is b- better for breeding, and they, they're more successful at raising chicks. We don't really know why this is the case. Um, it could be that if you're following, if you go to, if you follow similar routes, you end up in similar areas. And so you might, you're exposed to the same environment. And so if what makes you decide to start your journey back home for spring is something in the environment like day day length yeah. or temperature or something, then you're more likely to synchronize the return with your partner. And in lots of migratory birds, we know that if partners synchronize their return, they can start breeding earlier. So it may be. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very excited to hear there's going to be a second book. <laughs> That's one of the best bits out of what you just said. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what Mother of God, your first book did for me was, um, you know, I, I think I read it when I'd just come back from spending a year in, in the Borneum rainforest and I'd been back, I don't know, a few months or something. Um, and it did two things. It just really kind of reconnected me with that experience. And I think one of the things about the way you write is that you just feel like you're walking alongside you. It's very in the moment. It's kind of, it's, it's so vicarious. You don't even really feel like it's vicarious. It makes you feel like you're there. Um, but also it kind of lit a fire under me and re-inspired my, you know, from an early age for me as well. I remember a lesson at primary school about the Amazon when I must've been about six or seven and I went home that evening and I wrote off letters and um, to, to, you know, WWF and Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth asking to find out more about this thing called the environment. And uh, <laughs> what Mother of God did for me was kind of reawaken a little bit that, that kind of passion that I felt as a kid. Um, yeah. And, and I think people should basically just go and read the book, which is why I'm not focusing too much on the Amazon itself and the wildlife there. But I was wondering if there's kind of one one thing from Mother of God or maybe one one story from another time that really would convey to people about how incredible the wildlife and the the forest there is. Could you could you just like touch on that briefly for people? Oh God. Um one story to convey how incredible the wildlife of the Amazon. Yeah. Um <laughs> Sorry, that's, a that's a tough question. <laughs> no, I, I actually though I mean it's a, it's it's hard to it really is hard because it, it, you sound like a raving lunatic. You sound like one of those guys on the side of the street that like you know has a has a piece of cardboard and it says like you know the judgment is coming and he's <laughs> screaming to everyone because you come back. I came back from the Amazon and I was like, you know, my friends would be like, how was your, how was your trip? And I was like, 
oh my god you know we'd wake up in the morning we would pee on the beaches and you know and and then the, the salt like all these insects come and there's thousands of butterflies there's yeah. four thousand species of butterflies in the amazon and then you have a butterfly vortex a tornado a flying rainbow tornado of butterflies and it's like that's just from your pee and then you go walking <laughs> and it's like you know it's just it's magical it's like it's like avatar and um no i mean in a single day we so we've seen, I mean, just this spring, we've, we had some incredible days, man. I went on a, me and some friends were pack rafting down a stream at night and we had with our headlamps, it was raining and we're going down this stream at night. And we were saying it was like, it was like a very, very adult and terrifying Disney ride. Like you're on this pack raft going down this stream and there were like dozens of crocodiles, small crocodiles, forest crocodiles called Cayman on the sides of this stream. And it's in the rain, and we just have our headlamps. And as we're going down the stream, these crocodiles are going into. We're scaring them, you know. They're getting scared by us as we're coming as we're coming through, and they're 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 jumping into the water. But then, as they're jumping into the water, they're scaring the fish and the stingrays. So underneath our rafts, and there's just a piece of fabric. There's all these fish going by, and they're hitting into our legs and our butts. And and there's we see these huge, huge stingrays just just flying by us under the water. And there's only, you know a few centimeters of water it's really a, a tiny tiny stream but it's like there's owls looking down at us and there's jaguar prints around us and there's there's crocodiles and stingrays and all these things moving and you know at one point we came around the bend and there's a taper there it's like there's just there's just animals everywhere and there's giant trees with smaller trees growing on them with vines growing on that and bromeliads coming out of them i mean it's just i mean to people that haven't been to the jungle, I think it sounds like a very uh, unrealistic place because it's just, it's just, there's just so much life everywhere. You can just sit down in the jungle, look around you, and be entertained for hours. And um, you've done you've done some of those expeditions with people, but you've also done some like serious solo stuff. And I'm just wondering, what is it that motivated you to kind of go and explore, you know, bits where people have of essentially not being on your own what drove you to take that decision uh what drove me for that was that i mean i my intro to the amazon was through uh an indigenous group of people called the saeha and my my close friend and business partner jj we his family are, fr- are of that community and so i sort of got educated by going out with them on hunting trips and, you know, we'd go out and some of them, some of them were, you know, these guys would be like, hey, look, we're going to go collect Brazil nuts for a week way out in the jungle. Do you want to come? And I'd be like, sure. And then other times, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd want to go hunting or and then and then as time progressed, though, I'd be like, you know, guys, what I really want to do is I, I'd love to go. I haven't I've never seen an anaconda. Can we go? Can we go see an anaconda? And and they would take me out. And we'd you know, when you're out with these guys, you start listening to their stories and this is like this is where this is why I like your your journal becomes your most important thing because you start hearing stories about you know they start they start talking around the campfire and it's like yeah I remember a few years ago when we we were on that trail and we saw an anaconda that was eating a taper and you're going wait a second a taper is like a can be a 500 pound animal this is a cow and they're like, yeah, well, we saw this anaconda. He's eating this taper. <laughs> they're telling you this story, and and you can, you know, of course, it's real. They're laughing about it. They're remembering it, and you're like, oh my god, you know, I gotta, I gotta write this down. And then you're like, where was that? And they're like, oh, that, that one, that was a weird expedition because we went way, way out there. And I'm like, okay, cool. 
And then, like, the next day, they're telling a story, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, one time we saw the uncontacted tribes, and they were trying to, I think they they wanted our machetes, so they were, like, shouting at us from the other side of the river, but they all had bows and arrows, so they, so we were scared to go near them, and I was like, oh, okay, cool, where was that? And they're like, oh, that was that, you know, that was, we were way out there, and I was like, okay, cool. And you keep hearing these stories, and the end of all the really good stories is, well, we were way the hell out there, you know, and, and then you, I asked them, you know, well, what, what is, what's the deal with out there? And they would be like, well, the way they put it to me was, you know, all these PhD candidates, these students come down there, come down to the jungle, whether it's in Borneo or Peru. And I think for the most part, I mean, most people today don't have the survival skills or the expeditionary grit to sort of really delve into a jungle. So what you end up doing is you go to these established research sites. So you go to a place that has a house and trails and, and a staff and you have cooks and you know, you're, you're, it's awesome and you're in the jungle, but you're, you're in a somewhat domesticated environment in the jungle. Mm. Um, and so when you're there, you know, the wildlife is a little different. The jaguars might stick to only coming out at night. You know, it's just, it's just a little different. It's just a little different. Um, and there's this, just this weird law with jungles and wilderness. I mean, I guess the same would go for Alaska, but it's like the farther away from people you get, there's a strange sort of magic that settles over the land. And like uh, in the Amazon, that's a really powerful thing. And when you when you get past the, you know, the city and then you, you take a boat for three days and you get to a little, little community and then you say, well, what's past here? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, the crazy guy that we, that we kind of know, he, he lives, you know, five miles up from here. You get to his house and then you say, hey, man, I'm looking for someone to take me to the end. I want to go to where the, where the boat hits ground and we can't go further up this river. And then when he looks at you and goes, man, there is no way you want to do that. You don't know what you're talking about. You crazy gringo. You're going to die. Um, you got to kind of just be like, yeah, well, that's exactly what I want. And and you got to hang out with him. And, you know, the cool thing about growing and learning with uh, – the SAA was that, you know, I learned there's their sort of local take on things like they have, you know, different local like, you know, like we'll say like a, a chicken in America, we say a chicken does cockadoodle do like in France, it's something different. Like for these guys, they don't call the bird Hawatsin Hawatsin. They call it Shansho. They call it a different word. So I go would go to the, the this last guy, the only person on earth who could take you up this river and, and he'd go, Come on, you're just a crazy gringo. You don't know and I'd be like, Oh, come on. And I'll be like, I know that I can't eat Shancho because they're um, they're they're terrible meat. Everyone knows you can't eat them there. But you you prove to them that you have that local knowledge and you sort of hang out with them a little bit. You exchange some exchange some stuff. And uh you, you get you convince them that you're not just, you know, on a suicide mission and then you, you get out there. And that's what I did. And I did that because I felt like I love the jungle um, in such a way and at such a level that I wanted to strip away everything else and just be like eye to eye with it. I just wanted to be completely lost in it and at its mercy. And so, yeah, you go. I went out. Um, I got dropped. And this is sort of ends up being sort of, I guess, the, the climax of, of my book, Mother of God, is it, you know, I, I got and it's also sort of the climax of what I've done, uh, in terms of expeditions, but I got dropped so far out there that, you know, the, the, they didn't really have names for the little tributaries that were up there. It was sort of past the places that had names. And, 
spent as long as I could there. I was supposed to spend three weeks there, but uh, things didn't didn't pan out the way I wanted to. But but what, what the way it was successful though was that for the time I spent out there, it's like a different planet. It's not it's not even you know when I'm when I'm at at the research station that I I run now. Um, you know, you go out to the river at night, you can jump in the water. There's, there's no black caiman. And that's just because, you know, the occasional hunter or miner that might come on our river, the black caiman know to stay away from them. The black caiman know that this is sort of like a human human area. On this river, man, when I was camping, there were so many black caiman that I would turn my light on at night and there would just be hundreds of eyes. Not hundreds, <laughs> dozens of eyes looking at me. Um and it's just it's just stuff like that, like these giant reptiles, you know, sixteen foot long, black caiman walking the beaches, where it's like, you just don't see that in the rest of the Madre de Dios. You don't see that um, commonly. And it's like out there, all of a sudden, you see it. Um, usually, a yellow footed tortoise. It's a it's a land tortoise that usually grows to be a little bit bigger than a rugby ball. Uh, out there, I saw one that was looked a lot more like a Galapagos giant tortoise. Like it was, it was about up to my knee. And you know, you say, "How old is this thing? Is this 120 years old? Is it 200 years old? I don't, I don't even know." But what I do know is that in the human, in the human world, like where where humans are going into the jungle, you would never see that because that would have ended up in the in the soup pot. Um, and so things are different, and all of those little things, the animals being slightly different, the trees being slightly bigger. Um, it, it 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 comes it comes together to create a world that's very very different from one that we know or one that you can even access uh, easily by traveling to a place, and uh, it's just it's just it's just quite something. I don't know. I don't know how to say. It. To kick off where I usually kick off, which is by asking what role nature and wildlife played for you as a child and growing up. Well, I grew up in New York City, so it probably wasn't your typical your typical childhood where it seems like a natural thing that I ended up spending most of my life and time in the forest. Uh, my my attraction towards nature mostly came by the fact that I was born with a severe stutter. And I couldn't speak. I had what was called frozen mouth by most speech pathologists at the time. And they didn't, they didn't quite know how to deal with stutterers, just as they didn't know how, didn't even know about dyslexia or ADHD or any of those things back then. So the New York City school system just put anybody who wasn't normal into these special classes, which of course the kids would make fun of as the retarded classes. And it turns out that as, as with most stutterers, the things that stutterers can do is sing because of the airflow it creates. And they can talk to animals because of the psychological walls that drop down of, of being nervous about what, people ex what human beings expect of you or people waiting or making faces. And there's no expectation with the animals. Yeah. So my attraction towards nature came with first having just little pets I could speak to because I would be all day in these special classes in school, which basically we were considered broken by the adults. And then I would go 
home and go into my closet because I felt safe in the dark and I would play with a green turtle or a lizard or a garter snake. Sometimes all of them I would have. And I would talk to them. They were my world. They were the ones I could tell my feelings and tell how the day went and tell my dreams to. So my father, my parents realized this and, and they would often, my father would see when I was having really bad days or bad weeks at school by the amount of times he or my mother were called into the principal's office for fights because I wouldn't let people make fun of me. If they made fun of me, I was, I was always in some kind of altercation and I'd end up with the principal. So my father would take me to the Bronx Zoo and he knew that the one place I was attracted to the most at the Bronx Zoo, for whatever reason he didn't understand, was the big cat house, was the great cats. And it was a typical zoo back then. It was just bare cages with cage after cage of cats, the smell and the roaring and the sounds. And the reason I was most attracted to the big cats was because as soon as I would be there, I, they were me. Walking into the into the cat house at the Bronx Zoo was like going inside of my own head. These huge, strong animals, which were normal, which could tear down a human being easily, they were locked inside of cages by human beings. They were, they were not able to live a normal life. And the only reason was, as, as I saw it as a child, and I still see it really, is because they didn't have a human voice. They could communicate among themselves, but they didn't have a human voice. And if they had a human voice, I doubt people could or even would today keep them keep them in captivity the way we do. So that was me. I didn't people. I was actually very smart. I always got straight A's. I, I, I knew what I was doing all the time in school, but I was considered stupid or broken or, or not normal because I didn't have the normal human voice. So I was attracted by, since my earliest childhood, my greatest calm, even growing up in the city, were with animals. That's who I bonded with. That's what I bonded with. Mm. And I made a promise, though I didn't know even what I was saying at the time. When I was a kid, every time I'd go to the cat house, I'd promise, I'd, I would usually go to the jaguar, but I sometimes went to the tiger sometimes the snow leopard. And I would say that if I ever got my voice, I would try to get them out of there. I would try to be their voice. So could you talk me through a little bit how over those first few years when you were doing photography, how your equipment changed, but also how you, you know, could you say a little bit more about how you developed those skills, not just understanding the camera, but also how you began to develop the field skills that are also essential to, to wildlife photography and how did you fit that in around school as well which you know <laughs> as a kid you have to be at school day in day out and that can take up so much of your time that it's hard to you know become a real expert in something outside of outside of the curriculum sometimes yeah i mean there's the classic you know i, I watch loads of videos people like chase jarvis that's fantastic um the ten thousand hours rule that he always comes back to the idea if you haven't done ten thousand hours you can't be an expert so to get started doing that um you know learning as a kid as you say you've got to go to school so i just get up at five o'clock in the morning instead 
and I'd do two hours of photography on the farm and then come home, get changed, and then go to school. And then after having been at school all day, I'd come home and do another four or five hours of photography in the evening. And, you know, when you've got a farm outside your door, you can definitely do that and make the most of it. But I think for anyone, you know, with a back garden or anything like that, you can definitely find subjects to photograph. It's about that dedication and constant honing of your skills and your craft somewhere local is the key. Um, I always say that local is the key because if you want to learn, um, you can't do it some distant location. I mean, you can't go to the rainforest every five minutes and you can't go um, to Svalbard to photograph polar bears, but you can photograph butterflies and plants in your back garden. And there's a really great way to teach yourself and learn. Um, but in terms of actually learning, I never had any um, formal education in terms of photography. I taught everything myself in terms of watching um, videos online, plus, you know, just going out and practicing with the camera, reading magazines and books and, and constantly looking at the masters of photography to really develop my skills. Um, not imitating, but looking at the techniques they used and trying to apply those to my own work is a great way to develop your skills. Um, and constantly putting my pictures against those that I saw as leading in the field um, to champion and, and, and try and push my work forward. If you compare yourself all the time to your peers, to people of your own age, you, you find that you don't really push yourself as hard as if you compare yourself to the best in the industry. Um, so that's something I always did. But, you know, constantly working is the only way to do it. And you know, if you're not prepared to get up at five o'clock in the morning and stay out till 10 o'clock at night, even though you've got to be at school the next day and take the odd day off school to make the most of a project, then you're probably not dedicated enough to really um, pursue it as your as your real dream. Yeah. And you mentioned drawing inspiration from experts just then, and you mentioned Chase Jarvis as well, who who I really admire, not just in terms of his photography, but also kind of his ethic and some of the strategies he employs. You said that you looked at what other kind of world-leading photographers were doing and their technique. How, how from just looking at a photographer's photo, were you determining what the technique that they used was? How do you go about figuring that out? So I suppose the, the aim is to deconstruct a photo to how, the, it, was, how it was made. Um, so, for example, if we use Danny Green as an example, he's a fantastic photographer, but uh, one of the techniques that Danny uses a lot is he uses a long lens and shallow depth of field to isolate a subject and create a really stunning uh, picture that has um, these lovely blurry foregrounds and backgrounds that render everything out of focus other than the main subject he wants to um, show you. So how do you deconstruct that? Well, firstly, you look at what's in focus. It's a small amount. It's the eye or the subject he wants. And the depth of field is very limited. So from that, I can draw the conclusion that he's probably using an f-stop of around f4 or 5.6 to get that in focus, but blur the rest out. The compression of the shot is something that you'd feature from a longer lens. Um, so you're not going to get that sort of shot from a wide angle. So he must be using a telephoto of 300 to 500 mil. Um, and then a shutter speed to freeze the action is going to need to be um, 500th of a second or, or faster. And by looking at a picture and bringing those about it and writing them down in a book, you can very quickly start to analyze techniques that people use to make beautiful pictures and then draw those and use them yourself. Um, and that's something that I did a lot, but you've got to be very careful not to, not to really just copy people. You've got to interpret and use it in your own way. And that's why drawing from as many people as possible, going to people like Charlie Hamilton James with his fantastic wide angle approach to wildlife or, you know, Vincent Munio is a fantastic photographer. I just love his subtle photography. It's so gorgeously well done. 
And just taking inspiration from so many people, it allows you to draw and develop what you want to photograph and how you want to do it. And by doing that, you can grow um, and kind of develop your own skills and your own um, your own style, as it were, that is the, the ultimate thing that you want to do. But I would still say that I don't have a fully defined style yet. I mean, I'm 24 and I don't expect to have one until I'm at least 40 odd because I think I want to continue growing. But yes, by deconstructing and then reconstructing, you can develop and understand the, the ways that people shoot. So just to be just to be clear about it, you you were looking at other people's photos and literally taking down written notes on interpreting what they had done, then taking those notes out with you into the field and then kind of riffing on what they had done. So not repeating it, but maybe experimenting with some of the techniques or combining different ones from different people. Yeah, I'd say you know definitely the writing down at home. I wouldn't take the notes into the field. I'd just remember the ideas. And by planting ideas in your head a lot of the time, when you're in the field, you, you know how to do it. Uh, and that's how I'd work. But yeah, it's very simple like that, you know, just developing on other people's work and pulling those techniques into, into what you do. Cool. And I also want to kind of try and make this accessible maybe to someone out there who's potentially listening and thinking of taking up photography so what would you say to that person who's just listened to everything you've just said and has no idea what a five hundredth of a second shutter speed is or no idea what an f-stop of 3.5 means i'd say that the first thing to do is you know the basic understanding of photography is actually far easier to understand than a lot of people um think really uh, if you take a manual camera and you go out you'll very soon find that if your shutter speed's too high you get a black picture uh, and nothing's there it's just dark and if your um, aperture is too uh, shallow well you don't get anything can focus and really by experimenting is, is how you learn but there's a load of great information out there I mean we've talked about Chase Jarvis and he's fantastic uh, creative live is a brilliant website it's got a load of information about photography it's free access to watch and get all the videos there and you know you go on YouTube there's huge numbers of uh, people giving information I personally have a channel that I'm promoting to give people information about wildlife photography but that sort of stuff you can easily learn um, the kind of technical side of it I think the much harder thing to learn is your personal style and how you actually make a beautiful picture the composition and things like that and the only way to really learn that is to go out in the field and take a huge number of pictures but also to make sure that you you really kind of delve into the community, the you know the artistic realm, and just look at a lot of beautiful stuff, and then kind of come to a realization of why you think it's beautiful, and trying to interpret that in your own work. And not necessarily just wildlife photos, or even not necessarily just photos, right? Oh no, God no! Um, don't just look at wildlife pictures because if you just look at wildlife photos you'd just be so bored um yeah so many are so similar you look at architecture look at art look at renaissance artists look at um some of the great painters look at picasso look at everybody you know the more inspiration you take the just wider pool you have to draw on um in terms of creating your work um you know, look at architecture. I love staring at buildings, line, shape, and form. And the more you draw and bring from that, you can develop your work in so many ways. I look at probably thousands of pictures every month from photographers who are wildlife, who are landscape, who are portrait, fine art, everything. Because the trick to kind of developing is to understand that there is value in everything you're going to see in the world. 
as long as you accept and try to find the value from it. Um, if you just kind of overlook something and think, well, that isn't what I do, so I'm not going to look at it, you miss a great opportunity to learn something that you could really develop from. And can you, can you give an example of a way in which you've taken something that you've seen that a painter has done or that an architect has done or some, someone creative and you've applied that in some way to your photography? I think in terms of architecture, I, I love looking at the buildings just outside of Liverpool Street Station. They've got really um, harsh black lines. The NatWest building, for example, or the Gherkin, they've got these really wonderful black lines. And then the, the light that comes off the windows is really nice and harsh. Um, and a couple of years ago, I was working on a project photographing kingfishers. And I wanted to create an image that was a little bit different. So instead of getting a kingfisher in, you know, in all its colour, I actually decided to shoot a picture in a silhouette under an old bridge that I was working on. A fantastic old tank bridge that had these wonderful harsh lines and forms of the metal structure. Um, and then simply rendering them into black and underexposing to get a silhouette. I could have the kingfisher small in the frame as a silhouette but with the white contrast in the back. Um, and that's the way that I kind of take inspiration to develop pictures. You know, a lot of people would say that, well, oh, they have no, absolutely no corresponding link, but in my mind, um, is the visual cues of that um, that I take into my photography. Yeah, I've seen that photo and I think, as you said, it that photo really achieves what you set out to because the silhouette of that bird is so identifiably a kingfisher and yet it's unlike almost any other kingfisher photo I've ever seen. And I can also, now that you've explained what your inspiration was partially for it, I can see what you've done there with drawing in the influence of those buildings I suppose I suppose that leads me on to a, a follow-up question about distinguishing yourself and you said so much wildlife photography is the same and I think that's definitely true and one of the things that you've often talked about when when we've been in conversation or when I've seen you give pr presentations is about setting out to try and do something different and being aware before you step out the front door of what's already out there say you're going out to photograph a certain species of bird, knowing what other photos have been taken before. So would you say that trying to do something fresh and different is really central to the wildlife photography that you do? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't want to take pictures that other people have already taken. I think there's so many great pictures and great record pictures of subjects, but a really great photograph is when you can add something extra to it. You can show showcase a piece of personality, a trait of a bird or something like that. And, you know, sometimes people, pictures do come out looking similar. Like I do use a long lens and I like to make a, a nice, clean portrait of animals. But at the same time, they don't end up being my most favourite pictures. Um, they end up being ones that are on the hard drive and go to a stock library, but they're not something that goes up on my wall. The pictures as I look around me that are on my wall were pictures that quite frankly I've shown to no one just yet um there's stuff that I'm really passionate about and they they have to have a little bit of you in them as well I think that photograph that you make has to be the subject the moment but also a bit of your artistic flair and skill to make something a bit different and you know if you do do the same thing over and over again it does get a bit dull so mixing it up in terms of going out the door and only taking a 70 to 200 mil lens rather than a 500 mil or saying you're only going to photograph wide angle stuff or macro stuff. You know, you can force yourself to be different uh, and interpret stuff in a different way. And I think that's a key thing that in order to be different, you have to push yourself to do.
And was it just playing outdoors? Was it just that you did everything outdoors? Or did you notice the wildlife, birds and stuff around you? Or was it more just that the outdoors was where you did stuff? Well, the outdoors, yeah, was where we played. We built um, huts down in the wood. We carved, carved a hole in the middle of a big bramble bush, I remember. <laughs> 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 a, that was our hideout in there. And then at the bottom was um, a bank. Uh, I think it was, they used to call it a ballast bank. I think it was man made, and on the top was a little single track railway. Yeah. Because the, um, the sand and gravel, uh, sand and uh, chalk, it was a mining company and a gravel little railway. Yeah. And, and it was joined up to the southern railway with a link line, so I presume they used to cart it out. But we used to play, and uh, anyway, we ended up down in Somerset. It must have been Christmas, um, Christmas 1940. Mm. We went down, Auntie Dorothy was down there, uh, lodging with a family, and we went down for a fortnight's rest. And we stopped about four and a half years, I think. And that was to get away from the bom- from the bombing? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, to get away from the <clears throat> bombing. Because, um, I think the kids, us kids slept pretty well, but... As you can imagine, that the adults were doing restless nights and warning mm-hmm. and whatnot. So we joined um, Auntie Dorothy at this big house, and um, it belonged to the manager of the milk factory, which was next door. And um, we stayed there for Christmas, and then we we got lodgings along the the, the village a bit further away. Um, Farmer Curl. Then we got some more lodgings with um, hmm, another farmer. Anyway, another one lasted very long. And did you get involved in helping on the farm? Well, yeah, I was sort of um, a bit young then, only seven or eight. Right, seven. And then um, we finally got rooms um, with the schoolmistress because she was a single woman and she got a. Um, schoolhouse next to the school which was yeah. up, up on the bank and we stayed there oh a couple of years I should think must have been and uh, and there again we had the run of the uh, fields and uh, there was a, a, a hill at the back of the village covered in wood and the front was um, fields fields and uh, no hedges ditches mm. and um, yeah um we ran them up down there and we didn't really get into any serious mischief and um, <laughs> nobody stopped us going anywhere and there were plenty of apples to scrump in the when they were off on the trees. And not many cars I guess. No, no. Um, and the, the pavements there were quite high above the road and mm. they all had banks, grass banks and every Every pavement had its own cycle track down, down and up. We used to ride up and down the paths and up and down the banks. And um, We used to go ditch jumping. That was one of the hobbies. <laughs> All the boys went ditch jumping. And um, really, not, there was a, the River Parrot was oh, about a mile and a half away, I suppose. It was up to the up to the local, by the local church and uh, across three, I think it was about three fields, big fields, 
and the, it was a river parrot there, so we learned to swim there in the, <laughs> in the river. And ditch jumping is presumably just what it sounds like, competing to well, jump yes. the width of the ditch. That's right. Did anyone yeah. ever come a cropper? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> one famous one, it was me. Um, there was this ditch, it was about on my limit, and it had got a, a bank and a, a shelf and then the ditch and it about four inches of water and this uh, ginger what was his name he decided he's going to hide under the bank and i just jump over him as well so off i go at full pace <laughs> i got nearly to the edge and he poked his head up to see what was. <laughs> putting me off the jump but i couldn't stop <laughs> i ended up in the middle of the ditch <laughs> And uh, there was only four inches of water. I was up to my, up to my waist in slurry. <laughs> so they got me out somehow, and um, that was clothes off and swill them through and put them back on and <laughs> dumped them until they were dry. <laughs> oh dear. And I know that um, egg collecting was quite popular back in those days. Was that something you ever did? Bird nest, yes. Yeah. Yes, all the boys had their own uh, egg collection and they were always careful only to take one, <laughs> one egg from each nest. Mm. How many groups of boys did that? I don't know. Um, I suppose there weren't that many. There was about four or five of us of the same age group. Yeah. Did you have a collection? I did at one time. I don't know what happened, happened to it. It's usual um, blackbirds and robins, and um, the one that intrigued me was the little wren's nest with the with the roof on top and the little mm. hole inside. Situation in the rest of the rest of the landscape sort of exemplifies the fairly novel nature reserves now as conservation policy when they came about as a you know a novel idea. They were great, you know, the fact you could just have somewhere for wildlife. But we do know now, that we do now know that, you know, nature doesn't work on parks. You know, it needs these sort of landscapes there. And mm. I think, if anything, it shows that nature reserves are subject to the, the sea around it. Yeah, um, which in, say, in this country... Kind of of but I want to move us on to another issue where, um, as with farming and with pesticides, it's important that conservationists learn to work with other communities... This week, um, the RSPB published its latest bird crime report. So the 2017 report that was published just a few days ago looks at crimes committed against birds in the calendar year 2016. And it showed that there were 81 instances of bird crime, mostly against raptors, birds of prey. Um, but that despite these 81 uh, recorded incidences of persecution, shooting, poisoning... Um, there were, as as in many years, zero persecutions. Um, and because I work for the RSPB in my day job, I'm going to stick mostly to the RSPB line here. I'm going to leave the, uh, the I suppose, the discussion slightly more up to Pete and Ben. But um, the RSPB is worried that this recorded or reported incidence of 81 uh, bird crimes is just the tip of the iceberg. And that... A lot of this stuff is happening on upland grouse moors, particularly in North Yorkshire, um, and that a species of bird called the hen harrier, alongside other birds of prey, is at particular risk. And that's because while there is enough habitat in England for 300 breeding pairs of hen harrier, there are only 
two or three successful breeding pairs and that that's a species of bird that is particularly suffering from these incidences of persecution. Well, I think as someone who has, you know, conservation conflicts, which um, in opposition to a wildlife human conflict, which is a direct interaction between a species of animal and people who are on the land or whichever stakeholders involved, conservation conflict is between people and people. Um, I think that's probably the key most one in the UK at the moment, bar the badger coal. And it has become incredibly toxic um, to discuss it. Even if you come in from as neutral a point as possible, it's very difficult to share your view without having your finger pointed out from one side of the argument as being a traitor to one or the other. Um, it's an incredibly polarised argument. It's very difficult to weave around because, you know, it's essentially, you know, there has been scientifically proven that um, a sustainable grouse small with a, you know, a good surplus bag for a, you know, a big amount of shoot money is not sustainable with a large population of hen harriers on it, despite being a protected species. So you already need to have a black hole there. And the best we can do is try and have some, you know, this clear, straight dialogue and do the best we can. But it has been made very, very difficult by polarisation on either parties, uh, names of whom I'm not going to name right now, but if you can keep up the debate, you probably have to know anyway. But one thing that has struck me as a very, you know, a positive baby step forward, at least, of in the news that's come out this week in the Burge Crime Report, is the fact that the... British Association of Shooting and Conservation, BASC, have openly come out and said, yep, we've got a problem, we've got members who are actively killing raptors and this needs to stop now. And before, um, bodies like BASC and other uh, shooting bodies were essentially saying, yes, we condemn it, but there's not really as big a problem as um, R2B or whichever body was making that problem to be and let's just sort of, you know, leave it by the wayside, essentially. But this is one of the first open... um, cases of just saying right there is a problem and we need to solve it now which i think is a really positive step forward to having this dialogue and actually working to some way to resolve it um because yeah it has become so toxic that getting anywhere is so so difficult but at the end of the day you know these are protected species that are being killed illegally and we need to stop it now uh the way we do it you know that's where you know you start going to some very sort of risky places depending on what you say i don't know what your thoughts are on that ben Hen harriers, peregrine falcons, buzzards, red kites, all our raptors are incredible birds that are part of our heritage in this country. And yeah, and I know yeah, I speak as a soft southerner, but I have visited grass moors. Um, and I know the way that these communities value them. I know that the I'm... Actually, I'm a believer in the future of the grouse moors um, in the, this country. I think they bring great benefits for local communities. And certainly a lot for... Of money into the local community. They bring jobs. They sustain mm. it. And I think it's very important that we don't, they, we don't tie together the decline of raptors and the grouse moors full stop. Completely, yeah. I think that's, that's a very important correlation to make. Um, we're talking about we're talking about a culture mm. a culture of fear in many ways yeah. um, and again if we talk about the gamekeepers these gamekeepers who again if it is gamekeepers um, who are undertaking these acts and yeah, we, there, there is so little information available there must be a certain amount of pressure 
mm. um, being being wielded. Mm. Um, of course, you've got to take into account the fact that these grass moors are also last reservoirs for, as I mentioned earlier, the curlew, for example, yeah. which as a breeding bird in Britain is declined phenomenally and only seems to be on the up in these managed grass moors. So yeah. there is certainly a place for wider conservation as well. Um, and I think a lot of the people who are openly aggressive of grass moors into at least bear that in mind to an extent as well. Yeah. There yeah, is definitely. some space for mixed use in the uplands. Yeah. Mm. But at the same time, I think the main thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge that there is a problem here. Yes. It's something yeah. that we've been dilly-dying about the, about the issue for several years now. I mean, it has been getting into years. Yeah. Mm. And it's... Where is the action? The government have mm. even acknowledged that it's a priority, that raptor persecution is a priority mm. uh, for mm. them to take account of. And yet, where is the action? And so, yeah. from a sort of independent person's point of view, I, I applaud the RSBB sort of suggestion. Um, that, I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion I, I'm not a great fan of regulation, generally because I think we are, mm. the countryside is heavily regulated mm. and I think that's tied up with many other things but I think on this particular issue I think why not give it a go um, and as uh, as the RSPB have said um, people who aren't doing anything wrong have nothing to fear this is yeah. the thing from the RSPB is calling for one better enforcement of the existing law and two for licensing of grouse yeah. ones, right yeah mm. no, completely mm. um, but it is it's it's a very emotive issue um, mm. And it comes down to every so many issues in the countryside. Is it's about sides, and that's when yeah. when you mentioned Basque, mm. um, and and RSPB and all these organisations, people tend to have a very strong opinion for or against them either yeah. way, because of a certain view that they're seen to put forward. Mm. I think it's much better that we have we know we have a common problem, mm. and I think we need to get to we're actually at the stage now where we need to accept that problem. And we need to actually start to try things out yeah. to start to uh, to start start to move against them. Yeah. Now, the key thing is to detoxify, basically, because as soon as you do start making a anything that's sort of vaguely middle ground, side to middle ground, you know, there's still calling outs from one side of the party that's not good enough, or you're betraying or anything like that. And we just need to move up beyond that and stop just to stop this bickering. You know, it, it really, you know, I, you know, I, I, I essentially. Kind of a point on Twitter now, where if I see anything that I want to share about rats persecution, I almost have to sort of think twice of whether I am showing even too much of a slight on one side or the other. Well, even that's even how, in that's talk- how difficult it's become. Even in talking about it this evening and including it in this podcast episode, mm. I feel slightly like I'm walking on eggshells a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, which kind of yeah. is an indication that an issue has got too, as you say, too toxic and needs, you know. Mm. need something doing to it because you know people are slightly afraid to get involved in it and to talk about it yeah, anymore yeah, which is yeah. not a healthy healthy thing and as we were saying before about the power of podcasts conversation and being able to be open and talk about things is so powerful for finding solutions and moving forward and just for building consensus and common ground and trust mm. that feeling too scared to talk about an issue is not is mm. not helpful And I think I think the last question that I wanted to ask was about whether or not you have any particular hopes about what people's experiences through change in nature of the environment will mean for the environment and for their relationship with it or even for 
the protection with it, the protection of it, or whether you don't really have any particular hopes or expectations around that? Yeah, so um, I think the the way that I've been seeing what we're trying to do through Change in Nature, um, and I've kind of summed it up in uh, four words um, on our on our website as well, is um, unwind, reconnect, and come alive. And I think what we're really what we're really hoping to help people to do is firstly just to come whoever they are come into this natural space and just unwind because we're really aware that people have hugely busy lives these days people are under a lot of stress um quite a lot of people are sleep deprived it's kind of quite a hectic environment that a lot of us are exposed to a lot of the time and i've been reading into um a fair amount of research that shows that people who are busy and stressed and sleep deprived are less likely to behave um, in a way that's compassionate or that shows moral awareness. Hmm. Um, I, sorry, I don't want to throw you off course, but that's really interesting because I think one thing we didn't really delve into very much so far is how our lack of connectedness to nature is bad for us as well. So that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I think... So there's increasing research that shows that um, being in nature is actually uniquely restorative to the human mind. Um, we seem to be able to sort of achieve um, a, a state of alertness and attentiveness that's very soft focus in nature, which actually allows our mind to rest. Whereas in urban environments, we tend to be very overstimulated by um, all sorts of different sounds and sights and um, it, it keeps us kind of constantly working very hard at a mental level and so yeah so the first thing that that we try and do is just really bring people into that natural space and allow them to just open up and unwind and kind of go ah and let it all go and I think that in itself you know, will help re-equip people to go back into whatever it is that they do and to be able to operate more effectively. So we hope that that will have some kind of knock-on impact in and of itself. You know, if you're an environmental campaigner who has been working really hard and who lives a very busy life, um, you know, primarily based in an urban space and you just feel a bit kind of exhausted or burnt out, coming into one of the retreats that we run will really help you to re-energize and then go back out into the world and what you do kind of feeling a lot more resilient and able to to do things effectively so that's sort of the first part I suppose and then um and then we really aside from that we really try and help people to reconnect um both with each other so this is something that I think we were talking about earlier in the in the interview, which is about people's capacity to connect at a much deeper level when they're sitting around a fire in a very undistracted um, environment where they don't have all their phone notifications going off all the time. Um, and also to reconnect with the land. And 
for me, these two things are absolutely fundamental to um, helping us to be able to protect the environment more effectively. Firstly, connecting with each other, you know, we are part of nature and a lot of the challenges that we face environmentally are because we've in various ways kind of pitched ourselves against it. But but we do have genuine resource needs. And so I think understanding, being able to connect to each other more deeply and really understand what each other's resource needs are um, is is a really key part of us cracking the problems that we have to really understand where each other's coming from. Mm. And also just on a more basic level, I suppose, people coming into the retreats build very deep connections with each other. So when we run retreats just for environmental professionals, they go away with a really, um, really solid network of peers who they can pick up the phone to and, um, you know, just feel a much greater ease to, to call on each other after they've shared in that kind of experience. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the reconnection, reconnection with the, with the land and seeing ourselves as part of it is a really key thing as well. And I just wanted to, um, read you a really short, um, quote by Aldo Leopold from his book, A Sand County Almanac, which I think brings this out quite beautifully. That's the second time he's come <laughs> up in the last couple of podcasts, actually. It's what it's one of my two favourite conservation books, I think, or nature yeah. books. It's it's amazing. <laughs> it's such a beautiful book. Um but yeah he says just in the in in the introduction to the book, he says we abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. There is no other way for land to survive the impact of mechanised man. Perhaps such a shift of values can be achieved by reappraising things unnatural, tame and confined in terms of things natural, wild and free. And so a lot of what we do on the retreats is essentially finding ways to help people to see themselves as part of a community of the land and, and have a real sense of belonging within the ecosystem um, and not just seeing it as, you know, oh, it's nice and aesthetically pleasing, this nature thing, but essentially it's a pile of resources for me to utilise, but to really begin to relate to it as um, a very complex ecological system of which we are one species mm. um and then the the third thing is this thing about helping people to um come alive and it kind of it kind of relates to the first point about unwinding and helping people to re-energize but it's more than that really it's I think a lot of the things that we do on our retreats and a really great example of this is the deep time walk that we do with um, Stefan Harding it's it's really about helping people to access and reignite a sense of kind of wonder enchantment and beauty um, that perhaps they felt as a child and that has become a bit more dull as they've moved into adult life and I think it's it's that emotional stuff that emotional connection that is such an incredible fuel um, for people's motivation to to do anything to protect 
our environment. It's, you know, anger and frustration and um, these other emotions. I feel like they only get you so far. They're very useful in short bursts to kind of go out and be like, no, you can't cut this down. And, um, you know, to really get out there onto the front lines and try and protect things. Yeah. But you need a bedrock of just an immense feeling of wonder and love and beauty and enchantment about the world to sustain you through all of those difficult battles um, that we have to have. And so I suppose a lot of, again, a lot of what we try and do is um, nurture that, that part and those feelings of people in people and give them that fuel that will sustain them um, and help them to go out and, and do what they do. Um, yeah, so that's that's really the model of what we try and do through Change in Nature retreats. And it's a shift for me from working very much at a kind of policy level where my primary focus was on setting constraints to people's behavior in various ways. Um, or setting constraints on the market and setting carbon caps, or it was all about kind of creating a box within, within which things could take place mm. and trying to set limits. Um, and this is really a lot more about moving to the, the other end of the spectrum of just trying to fire something up in people and hopefully unleash a huge amount of extra um, human passion and energy that... I think will be directed towards protecting this amazing world that we live in. And you never know who's going to come on retreats. That's the thing. It's, you know, some people may go back and make some changes in their personal lives, but, and, you know, and that'll be the extent of it. And that's great as well. But other people who come may be in real positions of influence where they're able to change things at a much bigger scale. And, so that really excites me too. And there's a there's an anecdote that I've heard about um, John Muir, the famous Scottish conservationist, taking um, Theodore Roosevelt out on a camping trip to Yosemite um, just after he'd become president. And apparently it was a three-day camping trip with the two of them just spending time immersed in that incredible place. And apparently it was one of the big, I mean, I think Roosevelt was was quite motivated in terms of conservation anyway, but that was a very pivotal experience that um, he, he had. Um, so, yeah, that was, you know, amazing. If you can connect someone at that level of influence who has those levers to pull on, um, hopefully the change can be quite significant. Your your quote from Sand County Almanac as well. I can actually see the book sitting on my bookshelf from from where I am. Um, there's another fantastic bit in it uh, about that deep time thing where he writes about uh, the cranes that are standing kind of on the the layers of peat, like the pages of history beneath their feet. Um, yeah. I just think it's such an incredible book for so many different little bits that you can pull out and in so many different ways I, yeah i really think i really think people should go and read that book if they haven't already 
I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.